We've got a big offseason coming up for the Vancouver Canucks. And since I'm here filling in for Jamie Dodd, we're going to talk some prospects as well. This is the Canucks Hour with Chris Faber and Thomas Drantz. Faber! Drantz, I'm excited to be here filling in for Jamie I'm Dodd today. I'm always excited to chat with you, although obviously we miss Jamie. Jamie will be back later this week. Absolutely excited for that as well. But like I said, lots of prospects to get into today. I'm your man for it, Drantz. <laughs> here to of, bring lots it. Lots of prospects. Faber, so... Just for our listeners, Faber and I, we're, we're good friends off air, right? We're neighbors now. I yep. haven't taken you out for a welcome to the neighborhood beer yet, but I will. Uh, in the meantime, though, we have diametrically opposing viewpoints on young players. <laughs> if For those of our listeners who don't, don't know this, like I have a skepticism, a he- healthy skepticism about prospects in general. I don't believe that they're going to make the league until they make the league. And then when they make the league, I don't believe that they should be in premium roles. Right, I think there's this fan base bias, a natural fan bias, where you want to see what young guys can do. They're they're like limitless, untapped potential. So when they get to play in the top six, fans get excited about it. And I'm like, that guy probably can't hack it. Give me give me the everyday <laughs> NHL player. Give me the Brad Hunt minutes, the minutes that I know the guy's an NHL level guy. Like I know that he can do it. Th- those are the types of players I like. Faber's the opposite. I Fa- like a an every NHL prospect's player. going to hit for Faber. <laughs> An SHL player gets two weeks in the first line in the SHL. I am there for it. <laughs> but first, the Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca for more information. Before we get into a lot of these off-season important dates that we want to chat about, let's quickly just look back at you know the playoff hockey that we had last night. Oh. Obviously... Some excitement, I guess, is the way that I would fabulous. use the word. I thought it was a fabulous, it was fabulous psychodrama. And yet, you know, I don't know how you can watch what Jacob Markstrom is doing in this series and think that you should have a goalie play 60 games ever if you have any ambitions of going deep into the playoffs. You know, now Jacob Markstrom is one of those players who's legitimately one of the most impactful guys in the league when he's rested. And when he's not, Things can get a little dicey. I think that's what's happened for Calgary. I don't think you have to look too deep into what Edmonton's done. And I thought Edmonton played really well last night, particularly in that third period. I know they had the bogus goal against them, the the Kluche-like, um, you know, from the defensive zone, shorthanded tally that Rasmus Anderson dropped Bill Buckner style between Mike Smith's legs. But the way Edmonton moved the puck was crisp. I don't think Calgary generated much. I really liked in particular... Edmonton's ability to shut things down after that bogus goal. Like what you really don't want is a goaltender to have to face like two five alarm chances in quick succession after that goal against the Oilers kept it clean in front of them. I thought they transitioned really effectively, far more effectively than they had for most of the season in that third period. And ultimately they get, you know, the backbreaking Ryan Nugent Hopkins goal. But you look at Markstrom's save percentage in the series. You look at the fact that what did he get beat on his first three shots? Was first three of four, something like that. It felt like that in a lot of games so far. It's reminded me of the early Markstrom days here in Vancouver. It, th- this is a goaltending series so far. And and look, at this time of the playoffs, that's often what happens. You're often betting on the goaltender. And one thing about betting on goaltending, something that I, I like to talk about a lot, right, is you kind of don't know going into a series if, and, and we've seen it in this playoffs, like sometimes Louis Domingue holds up a bit, and then he doesn't, right? Sometimes... Jack Campbell plays Andre Vasilevsky to a draw in a seven-gamer. Uh, sometimes Mike Smith 
turns out to be the edge in net for a team that also employs Jacob Markstrom, a, a well-deserving Vezina nominee this year. My question is, looking at the way that this series is going to play out, and I know we touched on this kind of off-air going into it as well, what if you get the best Jacob Markstrom in these final three games? Though? Like, Are you giving the Calgary Flames much of a chance here as a down 3-1? But I think what you said before we started going here was two games at home, Yep. You haven't seen their top line be like the top line was all season long for the Flames. And you haven't seen Jacob Markstrom really steal a game for them. It feels like all playoffs long. No, you haven't. And so, yeah, I mean, I always think if you're the team with home ice and you're down 3-1, you have a better shot than if you're the road team down 3-1 because you have two home games. You have two home games to, like, I think it's really hard to go down, went to go to another team's rink when you're down 3-1 and they've got a chance to close it out and the fans are going nuts. Like I think that's a really tough circumstance for, for a team in the playoffs. Now, it's tough to be down 3-1 anyway, but at least when you have the home game, you win that home game, you go into the road game, all of a sudden the other teams, the other fa- team's fans are a little nervous. You get the first goal, you can take the wind out of the building sails, and then you force a game seven where your fans are going completely, um, you know, are just completely over-the-top excited about your chances to steal a, a victory from the Jaws of Defeat, and particularly with, with ancient rivals involved. I, I'm just saying, it's, it's unlikely. It's probably a 10% at this point, and in fact, it is a 10%. 327 teams in the history of the NHL playoffs have been up 3-1, and 296 of those 327 have advanced. <laughs> so only 20, or sorry, 31 teams have managed to come back from the type of deficit facing the Calgary Flames. That's uh, 9.5%, right? But just just because I think Calgary's got the better fastball five-on-five, because I still think that they have the better true talent goaltender, and because I think they're the more complete team overall, plus they have two home games, you know, personally, I'd peg it at more like a 15, like a 1-in-6 shot as opposed to a 1-in-10 shot. And so we'll see. We'll see. This series is not over. The third win or the fourth win sometimes, sometimes is the most difficult to get, but probably not for Colorado tonight. <laughs> most definitely not there. I, I find it so interesting. You brought up like after the Rasmus Anderson goal, the Oilers were able to just get over that so quick and be able to get lots of possession in the flame zone. It takes them about five, six minutes from that get play to see the Ryan Nugent Hopkins goal. Yep. But they needed to be able to bounce back off of that, and they did that. And to me, that looked like a different a different version of the Oilers than maybe we've seen in playoffs past where that goal would have broke them, right? You have Calgary, who a lot of people believe are the better built team. I think a lot of people in this industry have picked Calgary to win this series going into it. Myself included. Exactly. And you just, you look at this, this bounce back from Edmonton off of a situation like that, that looked like the certain thing that Oilers fans have probably seen in the past. Not that exact type of goal, but that exact type of situation where something like that breaks your back in a series where you've been looking really good so far. You're up 2-1 at this point. You lose that game. It could have been 2-2. It just feels like the Oilers, this is their series now. Like, they've been able to get the depth scoring. Like, Hyman's been excellent. Kane's been excellent. They obviously have McDavid. Dreisaitl's been stepping up from the situation he's put into. The defense just seems a little bit stronger this year. When you have Nurse, you have Bouchard, who looks like he's taking a big step. This Oilers team just, like, feels a little bit different to me than what we've seen them get knocked out in the playoffs in the past years. I think that's totally fair. So two things about Edmonton that I think have mattered a ton. The first is that their form under Woodcroft dramatically jumped, right? Like he had a massive impact on how the team was playing five on five. Sneaky, sneaky, great coaching decision in terms of the change that was made behind the Edmonton bench uh, there. 
I think that's having a big impact, and I think it's upped the Oilers' ceiling perhaps more than even I'd anticipated. I I knew that they'd been better under Woodcroft. I'd seen the underlying numbers. I was deeply impressed by the work he'd done, and yet I wasn't sure that they'd have the structural fortitude to outwork and outlast the LA Kings. They did, and I definitely didn't think that they had the fastball to hang with the Calgary Flames. They have, although I I mean... Five on five, Calgary's still been the better team. It's yeah. just the the goaltending is really the story of this series for me, and, and Markstrom has been far from his best, and that's why the Flames, for me, are down 3-1. And, you know, in addition to McDavid. <laughs> in addition to McDavid being incredible. <laughs> and then the last thing is, after Mikey Anderson twisted Dreisaitl inside out, and now Dreisaitl's immobility is, is clearly an issue, the Edmonton Oilers tweaked their lineup and and united this Kane, Dreisaitl, McDavid three-headed monster that has just run roughshod. And sometimes a big early playoff adjustment can spur a team to playoff success. And and I hate to bring up this example because Canucks fans will hate it, and I hate it personally. But it reminds me a little bit of when the Boston Bruins in 2011 figured out that, and, and remember they went to seven games in the first round against, was it Montreal? Um, Nathan Horton eliminated Montreal in the first round in sounds, 2011. Sounds right. I think it was Montreal. Um, but they they were down in that series, and the and then head coach Claude Julian changed up his defense pairs and put Dennis Seidenberg alongside Zdeno Chara, and all of a sudden, at the very top end of the Bruins lineup, they became this like 58 percent Corsi four team, right? And that changed their entire ceiling, their entire trajectory their entire playoff fate and as a result the Boston Bruins ended up winning the Stanley Cup final now uh, not as a direct result there was a lot of things that went right including Brad Marchand's emergence and Tim Thomas stopping 96 percent of shots faced but that was a big part of the Bruins figuring out a lineup that allowed them to you know slog through the Eastern Conference Final, despite facing two Game 7s on their way. Yeah, most definitely. And yeah, round one against the Montreal Canadiens. Right. 4-3 win in overtime. And, and, and But but if you look, too, they, they were down either 2-1 or 2-0 right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And they and they put Chara with, and it reminds me a lot of what we saw in Edmonton. It changed their ceiling as a club. Sometimes we see coaching adjustments in the playoffs have that type of sort of lineup-altering impact. And it's funny, like you mentioned, this is something that you bring up with the Bruins making that decision in the first round of the playoffs. This seemed to happen with the Edmonton Oilers early on in this Flame series as well, to just kind of go with that and be that trio come together for it for a long time. I think that the Oilers have surprised a lot of people, and you can get in contact with us on the Dunbar Lumber text line, 650-650, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver. And have you seen the website at DunbarLumber.com? It is beautiful. Uh, so get us there, 650-650. Don't even have to text like 10 numbers like you would to a friend. Just six digits, 650-650. Uh, get in contact with us there. But here's the but thing about the But first check the website. Beautiful website. Beautiful. I, I will check it beautiful. out. Beautiful. Just like the cedar that they have out there as well. Gooey. A gooey website. <laughs> it's been a surprise, obviously, in this series for the Edmonton Oilers to be up 3-1 at this point, have their line look so good. I don't think I, – I, I can't say that Connor McDavid has been a surprise. It's just been – to the next level that maybe some of us didn't, didn't imagine was possible in this time and age of how you can lock down a player like that and at least you know pay so much more attention defensively to these guys. But with the Oilers, if they do get through, can they surprise again, do you think? Or is this a situation where this might be the end of the road because the Colorado Avalanche are that good? 
Well, I haven't picked the Edmonton Oilers in a single series yet, so <laughs> I might not be the guy to ask, but do I think the Edmonton Oilers with Mike Smith in net facing shooters from the Colorado Avalanche is going to go well? No, I don't. But it's seven games, right? And while I don't believe that anything can happen over the course of a full playoff, um, you know, and, th- and this is partly why, right? Even if the Oilers upset the Calgary Flames, they're still probably looking at bumping into the Colorado Avalanche buzzsaw and then very probably, or one of Carolina or Tampa Bay, maybe New York, but probably one of Carolina or Tampa Bay. I mean, even if you advance around, even if you advance two, there's an elite team waiting for you and potentially a great team at the mountaintop, right? So it, it's a really it's a really tough trophy to win for a reason. You have to be really good. Do I think the Oilers have it? I don't. But but I didn't think they had this series. So there you go. Uh, with regards to an Avs-Oilers matchup really quickly, I just want to bring this up really quickly. I'm sure the NHL marketing department is excited about the idea of you know, treating their new national rights holders, TNT and um, ESPN, to, you know, these McDavid versus McKinnon klaxons, right? I'm sure that's a exciting prospect at the NHL head office in New York, as it should be. McDavid McKinnon, I ha- it doesn't get better than that. But I just want to note this really quickly. As much as I want to see that, as much as I want to see the two most predatory, like fast, skilled, players in the league it's been the argument of like who is the better playoff guy for years right it's been mckinnon a lot of these times until this year so it sets up a great storyline in that situation it does but as much as i want to see that what i really want to see is them play on the line together for canada in a best (laughs) in best tournament and i just want to bring that up i just want to i just want to note it that's the thing i most want to see i want to see mcdavid and mckinnon just buzzing around the ice at 400 miles per hour and throttling you know the other countries that's really what i want it's unfortunate because you watch a little bit of the World Championships and you see Canada lose to Switzerland, and you're like, hmm. <laughs> it's just so much of a different In the round vibe robin, to though, get right? The be- yeah, to get the best of But it's of still the round best. robin. Sure, but I mean, the best of the best, Canada's not losing to Switzerland, right? I mean, like, no. that's that's well, what's so unfortunate. Well, maybe. Maybe. Do you remember Sochi? I mean, I'd take you up on that bet do, if you, you remember do Sochi? It, I do remember Sochi. Where Canada ties, or no, they beat Norway in like the last five minutes, and yeah. everyone was like, <laughs> and then they were and then were tied with Latvia in an elimination game to like late and scored on a deflection and everyone was like what the? Yeah, but you got McKinnon and McDavid together now. So like, yeah, they're running through. And 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 not Mike Babcock just <laughs> sucking the joy out of Canadian national hockey. Couple texts here I want to get to on the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber. I'm uh, sorry, and line. I need to just be fair. Sucking the joy out of Canadian national hockey and then delivering gold like clockwork. So, I would I would have clipped something there for sure. Uh <laughs> Better to play good D than relying on goaltending, unsigned text as well. And I think from the same texter, uh, what kind of team are you if you depend on goaltending to steal your game? I don't think that that's what we're saying. It's with the Flames, they just haven't even had one game stolen. It's not like you're even relying on that because you've gotten now to the second round. You're down 3-1. And it's not about stealing a game. It's about not losing a game for your team, it feels like, with Markstrom. I also just don't think the the Calgary Flames defense has been that bad. Mm -hmm. Like, McDavid's going to get his chances, but... You know, I don't think you can say that Calgary's goaltending, or sorry, that Calgary's defense has sprung a leak here. It's Calgary's goaltending that's sprung a leak. That's sort of what I'm saying. At the end of the day, if you don't get a baseline level of goaltending performance, it almost doesn't matter how well you D up. I mean, we've seen this repeatedly 
in Vancouver, <laughs> if you've been paying attention <laughs> the last 50 years of Canucks history, and vice versa, right? A really good goaltending performance can make your defense look passable. I think that's something that happened a fair bit to the Canucks this past year. But, you know, you need a baseline level of goaltending competence for your for your defensive quality to stand up. All right. Let's I'll, switch gears. Let's pivot. Let's pivot here and talk about the Canucks offseason. So I want to frame this conversation. We're going to go through some critical Canucks dates, right? The, Canuc- the, the offseason is far too long when your team misses the playoffs for the sixth time in seven years, right? But there's actually a lot of storylines to watch for and anticipate and discuss. And sometimes going through like the critical dates calendar is what the league calls it when they submit their list of, you know, this day's the draft, this day's free agency uh, to teams. And for the Canucks, I think there's a lot to be mined by just sort of going through the calendar and, and talking about what we should be watching as the offseason unfolds. So critical dates watch. Let's start with this. Over the next six weeks, there's nothing. No, not really, right? It Really, it's like July 2nd kind of brings us to our first crucial critical date, and we'll get into that in a minute. So I want to ask you, Chris, and I want to ask our audience too. So text into the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line after checking their website and let us know what, what storylines are you watching for or most interested in hearing about over the next five weeks for the Canucks. But I'm curious to put it to you first. What are you most interested to see unfold around this team over the next four or five weeks? Well, I think the first one, and this is going to happen by the end of the week, I think Linus Carlson getting that deal done, getting that inked. I know that you and, and Rick Dahlia have done some reporting on this, that it's you know basically a done deal once the World in Championships the drawer. are over here. Uh, so once we get that done, I think that's a good start. And then I think from there, you want to evaluate. Well, you know him. You know him. Have you have you checked on our reporting? Yeah. No, I think you're bang on with it. I think you are. Well, I think we'll see that deal on uh, on May 30th, I believe, is when it's going to come down. Personally. Because um, well, you think they're going to win gold? I don't, I don't think it matters. And I think that Linus Carlson hasn't gotten into a game for Sweden yet. And with the addition of Nylander right. out there, there's no chance. It's yeah. unfortunate for... Linus Carlson. And, and you know what? To that point, to the it's World a, Championship. It's an incredible experience for him, nonetheless. It is strange to me, though. He's ninth in SHL scoring and doesn't get an opportunity to play in the tournament for one game. You look at some of the other players that have been in there, lots of guys outside of the top 50 in the SHL scoring who have been given an opportunity. You think with a young kid, Linus Carlson, at 22 years old, they would at least give him a shot. Pretty strange situation just for me looking at the roster construction it's, of Sweden. It's like anything, though. You need to like earn your stripes. You know, One thing you do is if you heed the call for the national team repeatedly that ups your stock you know what i mean and then as you progress in your career you're more likely to get the benefit of the doubt that that guy who's 50th in shl scoring this past year but has competed for the trey cronar at a variety of different mm-hmm. tournaments over the years is getting over carlson right you, you just have to build up your stock with the system especially when you've got as settled a national team pecking order as the swedes typically do as well as, uh, as we're speaking of the World Championships, Oliver Ekman-Larsen blocks a shot yesterday and ends up leaving the game as well. So we'll have to see. That's a developing situation, obviously, to see what happens with OEL. But you talked about it. The next six weeks here, kind of before we get to the draft, the big thing I think you have to look at is how are we going to be viewing the conversations going between Brock Besser and the Vancouver Canucks? I think that's the big one that I'm going to start to look at. And then, of course, from there, you need to see how this playoffs kind of shapes out and what teams might want to do and make a big change. Like, the Florida Panthers, I think there's going to be some changes coming to that roster after what just happened to them, after being the best team in the NHL, then getting swept in a playoff series. 
you have to think that there's going to be some sort of shift right there. I don't know if there's a full buy-in to what you did in the regular season after getting swept. I think there's changes with a lot of these other teams. There's going to be evaluation of, of the draft, of course, going up to this point. The second overall pick seems to be in play from the New Jersey Devils. So I think that the Vancouver Canucks is going to be making – they are going to be making a big evaluation on their trade assets over the next six weeks and getting all set for the draft. Do I think a trade happens before the draft? I'm not sure. I would bet money on drafts – or the trades – coming down during the draft time, whether it be the couple days before or even on the days of the draft to see how the picks end up playing out. So I think over the next six weeks, I don't know if there's a massive storyline to keep an eye on here, unless you can bring up another one. Yeah, yeah, I've got a few. So first off, I definitely think you're hoping that a team like Florida overreacts to the sweep, right? Um, I think it's very, it's always interesting to see how teams respond when they get punched in the mouth in the playoffs, right? Because... So often we see a team fail repeatedly before they break through, right? I think about the Tampa Bay Lightning coughing up multiple, three, 3-1 leads in the conference final over the years and then getting swept and then reeling off and becoming, you know, a, a team that they've won 10 consecutive playoff rounds. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, I think about the Boston Bruins. Again, I hate to bring them up twice on a single show because it sucks. But it does suck. But people forget the 2010 Boston Bruins, the year before they came back and won the cup, they were up three nothing in the in the conference final against the Philadelphia Flyers and right. lost. The Flyers stormed back and won four in a row. Danny Briere playing out of his mind. Um, they coughed up a three nothing lead in a, in a conference final <laughs> before storming back and, and winning the cup the next I think, year. Yeah, it, it, it. You bring up a good point about that. Just. You want what you what you really want if you're the Canucks is for Florida to be like, oh, that Mackenzie Weger, you know, he's doing extension. He really, you know, he didn't manage the puck well enough. It's like, yes, yes. <laughs> like, you know, if you're a team, you're hoping that one of these teams that falls short in the playoffs overreacts to Vasilevsky stopping ninety eight percent of shots for four games <laughs> and makes a and makes a bad move. Like that's what you're hoping if you're Vancouver. But anyway, back to the back to the storylines that I'm watching. There's. There's three major ones that I think will dramatically, potentially, dramatically impact the Canucks offseason. Number one, Andre Kuzmenko. Okay? So the Canucks have already pitched Andre Kuzmenko, but Kuzmenko and his agent, your good friend and mine, Dan Milstein, of it's Gold Star Hockey. We are Gold Star. We are Gold Star. I talked to Dan yesterday. <laughs> Always fun. Always an experience. Um, and, you know, th th we expect that decision to take, what, another two and a half weeks? Yeah, I'd say in the next 10 days. 10 days. Yeah, I think, okay. well, I would say like 10 days from now, give or take a couple days. From this. Yeah. So yeah, next two weeks, I think we'll have a decision. So so next two weeks, Andre Kuzmenko is going to sign with somebody. And that's going to have significant ramifications, particularly because, as as we reported at The Athletic a couple weeks ago, the Canucks view Kuzmenko as a power play guy. They They really like him because of his power play utility. Well, that poses some pretty interesting questions about where he slots in, considering all the star-level players that the Canucks use on their power play. Additionally, the part of the Canucks' pitch to Kuzmenko is, we're going to have cap space to give you a lift should you prove yourself to be a, an everyday NHL player a year from now. So that poses some pretty difficult questions about Vancouver's overall positioning, right? And as a result, I think the Kuzmenko decision could have like a significant butterfly effect on, on what the rest of Vancouver's offseason looks like. Uh, last point I'd bring up is we've seen the Canucks do this. I, I've sort of described it as a left-hand, right-hand thing since Rutherford took over, right? So Tyler Mott 
we trade Tyler Mott for a future with the right hand. With the left hand, we pluck Brad Richardson off waivers, and we've replaced Tyler Mott's penalty killing and and rush like uh, offensive attack on the counter uh, for free. Um, right hand trades Travis Hamanick and clears that cap space. Left hand takes a, a pick of equivalent value and acquires Travis Dermott. All of a sudden, you've replaced a guy for uh, cheaper, right, at the same acquisition cost, guy who's younger and has more upside, right? So if Kuzmenko signs, is that just a proactive left hand's replaced? And does that mean the right hand's going to send something out? That's sort of the big question that I wonder, just based on what we've seen, not based on what I'm hearing, based on what we've seen in the logic of that signing. So the Kuzmenko thing for me is like headline item, what I'm looking for from the Canucks this month. Number two, you brought up Besser. Miller and Horvat, I think, are, are part of this discussion too. Let's call them the extendables. <laughs> they're, right. they're the extendables. How do talks progress with those three players? That's a big thing that I'm going to be watching for in the lead up to um, July 2nd. And, and I think now at this point on this other side of the break, we'll really get into the critical dates part. But this is sort of the calm before the storm. The extendables conversation is, for me, a fascinating one to watch for over the next five weeks. And then here's the last one. Bruce Boudreaux talked to him yesterday. And... You know, he assumes they'll hire a video coach. Now, a video coach is often somebody's guy, right? A video coach tends not to be a particularly sexy hire. There's a few There's a few exceptions. There's a few video coaches who have sort of higher profiles uh, within the league. But typically speaking, your video coach is your, is, uh, you know, an executor. Like, not not a vision guy, not a tactics guy, but a guy who just crushes video and, and serves the players and the coaches in that respect, in that regard. But he said conversations would continue with management about bringing in an additional coach, an additional body. Um, Boudreaux was happy with where they were at. He'd be happy to add an, an, an additional body. I just wonder, as those if, if as those conversations unfold, if the Canucks might go and get someone either highly qualified or someone highly qualified but also a little bit outside the box, right? We know that Canucks Hockey Operations has taken a more diverse tack to fleshing out their leadership group, right? Cami Granado and Emily Castongay were hired for assistant general manager roles. Uh, Rachel Dory was brought into the analytics department. I know, too, that the scope of conversations and the scope of Rutherford's active recruitment and interviewing of a more diverse candidate set than we're used to, unfortunately, within the NHL ranks, like expanded beyond the three women who were hired. Could that potentially apply to the coaching staff? I mean, we, we are talking about a league where there are no women on an NHL coaching staff. Yeah. It's time for that to change, surely. Uh, considering what we've seen from this organization since Rutherford took over, could that be a consideration? There's certainly a ton of qualified candidates who would do a great job um, as, as an eye-in-the-sky coach. I, I'm, I just wonder if that's something we could see. And additionally, you know, Rutherford has typically had a role in his organizations. The role is called development coach. Yeah, and that's usually been a hockey person who's like smart, ambitious, talented, but doesn't necessarily have the experience yet to be on a bench. Uh, Sergey Gonchar was in that role in Pittsburgh before becoming an assistant coach. Uh, Mark Recchi, who's the current assistant coach in uh, with the New Jersey Devils, he he held down that role in Pittsburgh for a few years. That would be another sort of option that I'd think. But either way, I suspect that we'll get another body added, and I think that's going to be an interesting storyline to watch for over the next few weeks. To speak about that type of person, like. Scott Niedermeyer was an assistant coach for Bruce Boudreaux. He's living in BC. 
I know that he's working with the Ducks still as like a whatever ambassador uh, or something. Yeah, certain. Oh sort no, of he thing he like served that. as an ownership consultant in their GM search that landed Verbeek. So I'm curious. He was a, he Korea. was on, or no, he was on the bench for home games with Bruce Boudreaux as part of the Ducks. Interesting. Right? He wasn't on the road. This was kind of him getting into coaching at the time. He's a guy who's living here in BC, out in Penticton. His kids are now just finishing up their BCHL careers. Interesting name with Scott Niedermeyer, in my view, anyways. Um, well, Very get, interesting name. One I of the most so. interesting names. I think it would be one of those players. You brought up Sergey Gonchar. It just makes a lot of sense. One of, one, one of the great players. Like, I, 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 I don't know that people understand that Scott Niedermeyer was the fastest skater in the NHL for like a 15-year span. It's just that he played defense and was an incredible two-way guy. Like, honestly, it's like McDavid as a stopper yeah. is sort of the closest analogy. Now, I don't think Niedermeyer was quite that fast, but... That's the analogy. At the time, I mean, he, okay. He, it was incredible. All right. We got to more, a uh, little bit more playoff chat on the other side as well. We'll touch on some of these really important dates. Uh, but first, I want to quickly mention Play Now, of course. Bet on live hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. I don't know. Check Play Now. Maybe you can see what uh, what it's like for the Flames. You can throw a little money on that. Uh, I don't bet on hockey. That's right. And I've been told I'm supposed to add a ding to that for you saying you don't bet on hockey now. So oh, that is going I? to be in the... Uh, when I'm back in the producer's chair. But we'll get to a bunch more of the Vancouver Canucks topics on the other side. The big moments, like I think development camp is going to be huge. Obviously the draft. We'll touch on some of those very important dates on the other side. This is the Canucks Hour with Chris Faber and Thomas Durantz on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour. This is Chris Faber here with Thomas Drantz. I'm filling in for Jamie Dodd today. Jamie will be back later this week. The Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. I hear their website's pretty good as well. Uh, but you can get in contact with us on the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street and Ladner, Arbutus in Vancouver, or online at DunbarLumber.com. That's where the website's at. Check that one out. All right. We're talking about some of the most important dates for the Vancouver Canucks in the offseason here. We kind of touched on the first six weeks. I feel like after the next six weeks is when things start to get really interesting, Drance. Absolutely. So let's start with July 2nd. July 2nd is the deadline for club-elected arbitration filings, okay? I don't expect that the Canucks will use that, but potentially, if they wanted to, they could exercise their right to take Brock Besser to arbitration in lieu of tendering him a qualifying offer. And, you know, in that, using that device, they could even seek to reduce his, his overall salary level below the $7.5 million platform year salary that he had this year. That's really a nuclear option to, to use in terms of maintaining a relationship with a player. I, I don't think that's the direction this goes, but it's one to be mindful of because it's the first leverage point where, you know, a team, uh, one of the actors, whether it's Besser's camp or the Canucks, has to make a decision right. on, on how the rest of this will unfold. So that's the first one to really be mindful of. From there, though, we get to July 10th, right? Oh, no, we get to July 7th. July 7th is day one of the NHL draft, and the Canucks own the 15th overall pick. Some interesting prospects at the top. Now we're in, now we're into Faber's lane. Here we go. Now we're into the, the future NHL stars that Faber likes and that I think are dubious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of this draft class, right, there's a bunch of really interesting players 
that that could fall to 15th. Now, I think a lot of them, a lot of the names that you probably like the most are also the names that the industry likes the most and, and probably won't last. You know, Connor Geeky's a, a pretty interesting name out of the WHL. A really big centerman. Team's value size at center. It's why Marco Casper, a, a Faber, a personal Faber favorite, the like Austrian that. center playing at, playing out of the, of Sweden. Um, his work rate's too high. He's been too good at the Worlds. He's not going to last, I don't think. He's moving to center next year. Yeah, Lekamaki, um, Swedish sniper. Some people in the industry think or view him as one of those sort of shot-heavy guys. Shot-heavy guys don't always translate quite as well as guys who are more um, have more options in terms of their offensive dynamism. You think about a guy like uh, Tolvanen out of out of Nashville or or Owen Tippett out of out of Florida as examples of sort of shot happy prospects who just absolutely light up lower levels but but maybe don't have the dynamic playmaking to to hit that same level in the NHL. I think a good exa- Adam Ingram in this year's draft another perfect example right. of that. Guy with a really good shot but can he do all the other things at the NHL level? We don't know. We don't know. So but Lekermackie's um you know my understanding is I think the Canucks really like him, but he's he's definitely high on a I, lot of people's boards. I don't know if he's going to be available. So, but that class of player, Brad Lambert's another guy, fastest guy in the draft, probably certainly the fastest guy with the puck on his stick. Yeah, and you know, though one of those guys is probably going to be there at fifteen. Now, when I've done studies in the past and looked at the history of trading down or trading up, typically the team that trades out of the top fifteen. Even if they accumulate additional picks, like there's a few examples where it works, but typically speaking, you're better off just taking the guy. You're, his history suggests that you're better off just taking the guy, and yet probability, and we all know I'm a man of probability, suggests that you're best off maximizing your numbers of swings at the plate overall uh, at the draft table. And the Canucks certainly could use an additional injection of quality prospect depth. Uh, the 15th pick could be a valuable asset, particularly because a lot of people see this as, you know, a 12-player draft yeah. where um, the gap in evaluation beneath that 12 is going to vary widely within the industry, meaning that some team might really value that 15th overall pick, even if the Canucks find themselves there and say, hey, you know, we really like another guy who we think is going to be available Seven, eight picks later, maybe it makes sense to trade down. That's the thing. And you brought up those names off the top. I count those names. Lecker, Mackie, uh, Cutter Goche is another example. Brad Lambert's the other yeah, one. C- and Cutter Goche might get in the top five. He, yeah, just from this play. And like, that's, it's going to be really interesting. But I look at those players, right? And I'm thinking the Canucks are sitting there at 15. A lot of these players in the top 12, like I've seen drafts. I've seen how drafts goes. There's going to be some surprises. I think there's going to be at least three surprises in that top 12. That puts one of these top 12 that has been kind of rated a lot throughout the industry. One of those players is going to be there at 15. Do the Canucks value that player enough? Does it need to be the guy they're high on? Does it need to be Lekaramaki? Or if it's, you know, if it's Brad Lambert, do the Canucks not value him as much as maybe another team who's sitting there at 22? Like I bring up the the Anaheim Ducks. They're in a, in a really interesting spot with the 22nd pick in this draft. Also the 55th pick. That would make a lot of sense to be a trade-down option for the Canucks. You move down seven picks. And the Canucks want to get back in the second round. Exactly. Desperately. You, you move down seven picks. I think the value coming back to you is a second-round pick. Oh, yeah. It's H- an- History would suggest that if you're moving you know, more than three picks down the order, 
in the teens, yeah, you you tend to get, and you usually tend to get a pretty decent second round pick, like you know forty one or or something like that. I'm thinking about when the, um, you know, uh, the Atlanta Thrashers, for example, they moved from eight to twelve, and then from twelve to to fifteen, um, the Rangers paid the forty first overall pick to move up and and get Mark Stahl, yeah, at twelve, and the and the Thrashers, of course, because they're the Thrashers, blew the fifteenth overall pick on a guy named Alex Bure, but they got Andres Pavlik. For their trouble at 41. Well, you don't have to look any further than the last year's draft. Right. With the 15th overall pick, the exact same pick that the Canucks are sitting at right now, the Dallas Stars end up trading that pick. They move down eight spots to go to 23rd overall where they select Wyatt Johnson, who's a center of the OHL. Yeah. They end up getting the 48th overall pick, which I had to double check because they picked 47th and 48th. So they picked Stankoven at 47th there. Okay, so but then they, they didn't added, get the Stankoven pick. No, but they did what I'd like to see the Vancouver Canucks do is like, hey, you trade down seven spots, they draft a center, and then they use that 48th pick that they acquired to draft a defenseman. Right. That's what the Vancouver Canucks need to do Desperately. to add to their prospect well, pool. But the Canucks also just need to stop whiffing on the obvious WHL guy <laughs> who we know <laughs> is going to be a stud. Like, it's not, there's no moment in which this is hindsight. Justin Sordiff was the obvious pick where the Canucks were drafting in 2020, and yeah. they took Yoni Irmo, who had a decent season, but is not trending nearly as well as Justin Sordiff. And Stankoven was the obvious pick in the second round when they picked Danila Klimovic, and he went seven picks later to the Dallas Stars. And did he just score his fourth hat trick of the WHL playoffs last night? He scored four last night. I think he's up to like 19 goals or something. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, like Stankoven's been excellent and obviously getting a chance to see a local guy in WHL. It, it just sucks because we saw it coming. It's, yeah. not, it's not hindsight. Like, that they really got to sort out the dub. Well, it could be really interesting. Like, I'm, Connor- I'm sick of this. Like, I've spent, I've spent, 12 years of my life being like, ah, you know, it's really too bad that they picked Adam Polishek ahead of <laughs> Brendan Gallagher, right? Yeah. Like, it's really too bad that they picked Nikita Triamkin ahead of Braden Point. Um, and in every case, we knew it. It's not hindsight. Like, we knew it at the time. I nuked all my tweets, but you can see my tweets being like, they should really <laughs> pick Braden Point here in 2013. Like, we all knew. That's what's so frustrating about it. Uh- Frustrating part is nobody keeps receipts on those tweets for you, Drance. That's unfortunate. Well, no, I nuked them. I nuked them when I got <laughs> hired, but they don't exist. Uh, I've seen receipts out there of nuked tweets quite a bit. Of mine? Well, just everybody's. Yeah, I mean, not I, mine. Okay. I nuked. I nuked too many, <laughs> and I did it. And I did it under the cover of darkness before anyone realized what was happening. <laughs> before Twitter was popular. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, let's get to another obviously important day. The draft is huge. I think that's going to be the interesting thing. Do you think that that's the day of the off season to see the most trades from the Vancouver Canucks? Let's. Let's even like include draft picks being moved around. Is that the biggest day of trading for the Vancouver Canucks? Or because they have names like Brock Besser, they have names like Connor Garland, JT Miller, these players who could be on the trade market, even throw in Tyler Myers in that situation. Is this the biggest day of trading for the Vancouver Canucks on the draft, whether it be the first round or the second round, uh, second to seventh rounds, day one and day two of the draft? Is that the biggest day of trades for the Vancouver Canucks? Or is it a different day in the offseason because of the other options that they have on the trade market. Interesting. Um, I think, so typically the lead up to the draft is where we see the silly season really ramp up. So really we're talking about sort of, you know, from a few days before leading into the, leading into the, um, overall 
So we're leading into the draft. It's really yeah. it's really like the 48 hours prior to the draft. Once all the teams sort of decamp to Montreal, everyone's in the same city, all of their hockey operations departments are there. You know, the NHL takes over Montreal and then you start to see some movement. That that's typical that's sort of what to watch for. Uh for sure. And what's going to be interesting from a Canucks perspective is as that date nears, you're going to have guys like JT Miller and Bo Horvat who are like 5 days out from being eligible to sign extensions. Presumably some legwork is going to be done in advance. The Canucks are going to have a really good sense of where those players stand and how realistic those assessments are. And they're going to likely spend the next six, seven weeks, and not likely, for sure, spend the next seven weeks continuing with the process that they've, you know, been, been, that's been underway since new management got into town of gauging value, of seeing exactly what the trade market looks like for these guys, what the, what the market looks like in terms of resigning them or extending the extendables as it were. And, you know, they're going to be able to make a decision at that point. They're, in fact, they should be making a decision at that point because, in my view, history pretty clearly indicates that you're best off making that type of deal for a really premium player in the offseason when teams have, you know, money that's not committed and the ability to exceed the salary cap as opposed to, you know, at the deadline or during the season where you can hit a home run for sure if you create a bidding war. But, you know, the, the, um, there, there's a problem-solving element required once teams are locked into their in-season cap. Yeah, the best thing you want for a bidding war is multiple teams. And I think that's what sets you up into the season. It makes it so difficult for people to really plan for the season, for teams to plan their salary cap out to go through a season. When, when you're in the offseason, like you bring it up, going into the draft there, those few days approaching it, you have all your draft picks ready to go. You haven't selected anybody at this point. It's not like the NBA or the NFL where you kind of trade players that you just recently drafted. That just doesn't seem to happen in the NHL. So I think the days going up to the draft is going to be really interesting for those big names, specifically JT Miller being the big one, right? I mean, at the $5 million cap hit for next year, a lot of teams that it, that didn't get their, their result that they wanted in these playoffs I think are going to be interested when it feels like at the trade deadline there might have only been a couple teams that really could have been able to take on JT Miller and think that they could get him signed long term. I think this has added a lot of teams now that we're in the offseason. Like the Devils want to make a push. You look at certain teams like the Philadelphia Flyers are going to be really interesting because I feel like they're just a wild card on the trade market. There are so many teams that are now in the mix that we saw the the I guess the the deal that the Vancouver Canucks were sort of sounded like they were offered from the New York Rangers. And it seemed like a pretty decent return. I think what the Canucks are looking for is a great return, and I think that coming up to this point in the draft, this is when you're going to see that deal that you can't turn down. If you're ever going to see it, it's going to be the couple days before the draft or even on day one of the draft. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that, and and sometimes day two. Day twos, don't, don't sleep on day two. We saw JT Miller move the first time to Vancouver on day two. I think the P.K. Subban trade came down right before that, too. Right, so don't don't sleep on day two, and, and don't sleep on the hours after the draft. I still remember leaving the arena in Pittsburgh to go grab a drink, and all of a sudden, all the Toronto writers have to turn turn back because <laughs> Luke Shen and James Van Riemsdyk got traded for one another. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you you never know. You never know on draft weekend exactly how it's going to unfold. Um, one date we missed that I just want to pr- bring up quickly. First buyout window. Yes. Opens on July first. So that's an interesting one to track. The, the I think the only really I think the only player that the Canucks would really consider buying out would would be Jason Dickinson. I would narrowly expect them to wait. I I don't think 
that's a deal, a, a buyout that you exercise necessarily right away. But that's sort of the one to watch for there. Uh, that that you know, the buyout window opens on July first, and the first buyout period ends on the twelfth. So the draft goes on the seventh and eighth, and then on July tenth, the Canucks will, for the first time since two thousand and nineteen, nineteen, hold a development camp. Which you're really excited for, because oh. these are all your favorite guys. I tell you, I've been talking to these guys for years. And you know what? It's funny, because I've been talking to these players that the Canucks have drafted since the 2019 draft. The guys from the 2019 draft got an opportunity to participate in a development camp. But every player drafted in 2020 by the Vancouver Canucks, every player drafted in 2021, they haven't met their fellow draft picks. They don't know other prospects in the system. This is their first development camp as Vancouver Canucks. It's coming two years after they were drafted. So I think this is a huge opportunity for a lot of Canucks fans to hear about how these prospects kind of stack up against each other. Is Aiden McDonough the best guy at this camp? Is Linus uh, Carlson the best player at this camp? Which defenseman looks like they can actually move the puck and might have a future in Vancouver? Like this development camp is so important. And what I've heard from the players and the prospects from talking to them is that there's a huge excitement to see the competition. And, and like I, because I haven't covered a development camp yet either. I'm, I'm still new in the industry myself. I haven't been able to see a development camp yet because they just haven't had any over the last two years. So, like, can you tell me about the competition that we do see at these development camps, Trans? Yeah, I mean, it depends on exactly how it's structured. But development camps a fun time of year because you have a, a variety of players on the ice. Now, here's what's interesting for me from a big picture Canucks perspective, right? Because I don't believe in young players, but you need a lot of them. <laughs> you need you need a lot of talent coming up and through your organization. The Canucks don't. And we just saw them, I don't want to say strike out, but certainly not land the type of types of potential impact NCAA UFAs that I think the organization was certainly interested in. Now, yeah. the thin veneer of amateurism, even as it's diminished in, in the uh, United States as a result of uh, a change in laws, the the, the player likeness era has, is among is is here now, and college athletes are actually able to make money off the fact that they're bringing in a ton of it for the various institutions that they attend. Um, nonetheless, a player who's in college and unsigned, like they can't sign a contract and be in college, right. they can't be paid by a team and be in college. But the one thing they can do is is and and there's various rules that apply, but they can fund their way to attend and actually no I think the teams are allowed to buy them a ticket and and put them up. So I think there's a small amount of help that a team can offer to an NCAA player to come attend development camp and you'll often see unsigned players brought in to development camp for a team to get a chance to build that relationship, for a chance uh, for a team to get to know them and just like as a as an example like Troy Stetcher attended a Canucks development camp before he signed with the club. Um, some players that I worked with when I was in Florida who attended development camp there who, you know, are now impact NHL guys uh, include um, uh, Neil Pionk of the Winnipeg Jets. Yep. So that's an example of a guy brought in. Now he's a stud top pair defender. You have one Sean in Dursey. as well. Sean Dursey. Uh, Jared Lucas Savages attended 2017 right. development camp. He's now part of the Abbotsford Canucks. So you do have an example here in, totally. in the area. Well, and, and you think about like some of one thing the Canucks did pretty well was fleshing out that. WHL roster with some guys who, you know, I, I think about a guy like Chase Wooters, who's probably worth a 50 contract slot at this point. Waters. What would I say? Wooters. That's how it reads. Waters. Sh uh, Chase Waters. Um, but, you know, like that what guy. What a name, by the way. Chase that, Waters. That guy warrants probably an ELC. 
you know, based on where he's at, he, he might be the Canucks' best organizational depth centerman at this point, depending on whether or not you think Linus Carlson plays there in, at, at the pro ranks. So, um, you know, I, I even think about a guy like Kristen Nielsen, probably doesn't warrant an ELC yet, but could if he builds off of his strong AHL rookie campaign. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting opportunity for the club to begin to rebuild their attractiveness to NCAA UFAs uh, to begin to build those relationships, to bring in some unsigned um, CHL draft draft picks too. Uh, some guys who don't get drafted in Montreal. There'll be a scramble in the wake of the draft where invites are handed out yeah. uh, to, to bring in as much talent as you can. And the additional application of this is that the Canucks will have a Young Stars tournament and they'll need to flesh out that roster too. So the... Uh, development camps are really interesting opportunity for the team and the level of competition and the level of like team building activities. There's always like fun activities to do tons of courses, tons of relationship building things that go on. It's a fun time of year and a fun thing to cover anyway, to really quickly zoom through this so that we, uh, present uh, a wrapped up bow for our, um, for our listeners. The 11th is the deadline for the qualifying offers to be submitted. That's a key date for Brock Besser in particular, but Yuho Lamico and Matthew Highmore as well, not to mention Jack Rathbone. Those are some of the players that surely the Canucks will QO. Uh, and then there's some more interesting decisions that the club will make, and I, I'd expect we'll see a fair bit of a fair number of players go non-tendered, particularly because you've had a shift in management, right? There, there's a new evaluation of some of these right. prospects. The market for UFAs opens on the 13th. That's obviously an important day. That's free agent frenzy day, but it's also uh, the day that Horvat and Miller become eligible to sign extensions. Could we get news on that order on that day? Uh, will be interesting. And then the deadline for player-elected arbitration is the 17th of July, and that'll be an interesting one again with Brock Besser in mind. So th- those are some of the key dates to look for. That's our off-season preview at Canucks Hour with resident prospect <laughs> expert Chris Faber. It's been a good one. From one prospect to another, Ricky Tideman. Want to bring him up? Pitching for the Seas, 19-year-old left-handed pitcher. Had his first start earlier in the week. And, Drance, have you been out to the Seas game yet? I have, I have but I'll go. Very soon. All right. Well, the Vancouver Canadians are back at the Nat. For tickets or info, visit CanadiansBaseball.com. See you at the Nat. Four of the top eight prospects in the Blue Jays system. Playing in Vancouver. Let's right go. Now. So be sure to is, get out is there. Is that and check Dutch out. pitcher healthy yet? Yes. Sam Robursa. Yes, excellent. Excellent pitcher. Well, and don't they have another one? Van Heck or something? Yeah, I believe he might have moved up. Oh, okay, nice. CJ Van Eyck, I believe. Ah, he moved I already up, missed uh, him. Elite. Yeah. Too bad. Tonight, 7 o'clock. Catch you here on Sportsnet 650. This has been the Canucks Hour for Thomas Durant. My name is Chris Faber. This has been the Canucks Hour.